You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you, and so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for coming by today to uh, learn a few things about your faith and to uh, hopefully pick up a few words of wisdom. Uh, Bishop Sheen will be speaking tonight on a topic entitled Misplaced Infinite. And I think sometimes we misplace the infinite, and Bishop Sheen knew that, so uh, he'll be sharing with us for a few minutes on that topic. And then we'll continue our catechism lesson Uh, We're on lesson number 24 today, and uh, it's a 50-part series that uh, Bishop Sheen recorded back in 1965. And, you know, it was always um, uh, the preference of Bishop Sheen to uh, prepare his candidates for confirmation well. If you wanted to become Catholic under Bishop Sheen's watch, he required 26 hours of instruction with him. And many of uh, his, um, I just want to say benefactors, of course, spiritual benefactors, uh, sat through those classes and absolutely loved them. And, uh, you know, every weekend Bishop Sheen would uh, put on catechism lessons and uh, teach the masses. Hundreds would take these classes. And so he has many thousands of souls to his record. And um, it's amazing how, of course, being a bishop, he has that charism to teach the flock and teach the faith. And so this lesson, uh, lesson number 24, is on sanctifying grace. And uh, I need a brush up on sanctifying grace. Um, uh, We all need grace, but especially this one. So I'm quite excited about that lesson coming up later in the program. But uh, let's begin with prayer, as we always do. And so please join me as I uh, invoke um, a special favor from Bishop Sheen. Uh, it's uh, one of these things, this is the beauty of being Catholic, is that we pray to the blesseds, to the saints, uh, of course, the holy souls in purgatory, and so it's nice to call on Archbishop Sheen for a favor. So let's, uh, let's pray together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth. Through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, by granting the favor I now request through his prayerful intercession. 
and here. Uh, take a moment or two to ask for your favor. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So please enjoy now this uh, audio portion from the television series Life is Worth Living. And the topic for today's program is the misplaced infinite. Please enjoy. Friends, uh, this past week we received a letter from a mother in Chicago who had a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter by the name of Caroline. And it seems that just about the time of the start of our television series, the mother said, Someone whom you like very much on television is coming back now. And the mother showed little Carol Ann our picture and said, Now, Caroline, who is this? And the little girl said, Red Buttons. <laughs> these two clocks on these cameras do not agree. I shall go by this one because it gives me more time unless they change the other to meet it. <laughs> You've heard all sorts of proposals and suggestions about making a better world and have heard an analysis of our world. May we suggest that there's nothing that ever happens in the world that does not first happen in the mind of man. Therefore, it might be well for us to analyze the modern man or the modern soul. We will describe the modern man and present him, rather, in terms of this semicircle. Now, this also includes woman. I know of a professor of anthropology, a woman professor, who began her course by saying anthropology is the science of man, and then she realized something else. She said embracing woman. So we include women here. <laughs> Notice that it is open at the top in order to indicate that man has transcendent and infinite interest. Here at the top is life, truth, love. In their perfection, which is the definition of God, the normal man, normal human being, was meant to have open relations with perfect life, truth, and love. Now man is made up, first of all, of a body or flesh. Secondly, of mind. And thirdly, man has relationship with things outside of himself. In other words, the great world that surrounds him. The normal human being recognizes that his body his flesh, has given him the capacity to experience a certain amount of carnal love. This love normally is to be seen as a spark that is caught from the great flame of love, which is God. 
No one who believes in this kind of a universe, and all sane men do, would ever say, for example, that sex is wrong. Because God has given this creative power to man, which is to be used according to God's laws for the increase of the human race as a remedy for his passions and also to establish mutual friendship with the one that he loves. Therefore, it may be illustrated in some such fashion as that. Secondly, man has a mind. And the mind of man is able to take up things which are below him, to bring them into his own intellect and spiritualize them. For example, when this chalk is known by my mind, it has a new kind of existence than it has here in the external world. Therefore, the human mind gathers material for truth into itself. And at the same time that it does that, it realizes that it is also open for another kind of truth that can come from above. And we express this normal relationship of the human mind to God and of mind to God by this life. Thirdly, man has relationship to things outside of himself. Things are necessary. That is to say, private property. It's necessary, first of all, in order to assure his own economic freedom, and also to give him social existence. He must work for the prosperity of the world. The superfluities that he has, he will give to the poor. Maybe you'll send some to me to help me on my missions, too, incidentally, which isn't a bad idea. <laughs> Now that I have to think of it. Therefore, all things will be used in a divine sort of way to help spread goodwill among men. This is the normal way that a man lives. Now, suppose you cut off God from man. Then you have man down here without any destiny. Now man cannot live without a God. That is impossible. So he has to make his own God. He generally will make three gods. The first God will be his own body. And he will turn that into an adoration of sex. And he will attempt to compensate for a want of an eternal divine destiny by the intensity of erotic experiences. Secondly, man will make another god for himself, which will be egotism and pride. He will assert that there is no knowledge outside of what I know. There is no law outside of my own will. I must always be pleased. The result is that civilization becomes nothing else but a conflict of individual egotisms. Each one affirming his own will, resulting in jealousies, bickerings, slanders, and to put it most mildly, want of charity and brotherly love. And then the third God that men will make 
You know, the only perfect thing that I draw is the circle. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> I'm real pleased with myself when I draw a circle. Some men, instead of using things sacramentally, that is to say, to help them cultivate virtue and lead themselves to God, they just simply adore business. And they know they have nothing on the inside, so they attempt to compensate for it by aggrandizement of externals. And they think they're worth something because they have something. The result is that this God becomes avarice or greed. These are the three kinds of deities that the modern world is worshipping. The misplaced infinites. The false gods. And we have three psychologists who are concerned with these abnormalities, or rather psychiatrists. Freud is concerned with this kind. Adler, who gave us the inferiority complex, is concerned with that kind. And Jung, the greatest of all the psychiatrists, is concerned with this. Namely, Jung is interested in explaining away man's desire for security. Adler, the desire for inferiority. Freud believes that man is the way he is simply because his sex has been repressed by a superego. This is the superego. With what result? That this modern man is suffering as a result from anxiety, and he's also suffering from despair. First of all, modern man is full of anxiety because he sees a tremendous disproportion between what he is and what he ought to be. He feels like a fish that's been caught in a net. The more he struggles, the more he becomes entangled. He feels suffocated in his tiny little world, breathing always in the same air that he breathes out. He feels like a mountain climber who cannot see the peak of the mountain on account of the fog. But down below he can see the abyss. The result is that life has become boring and tiresome and full of anxiety. And from that has come despair. Because the man who lives in this tiny little circle does not open at the top to the infinite, can see nothing ahead of him but death, and annihilation, and destruction. And hence comes despair, dread, fear, trembling. So that his last end is, as Baudelaire put it, the last sacrament of a skeptic is suicide. This is our modern man. Now there are four horsemen in literature that correspond almost to the four horsemen of the apocalypse who have described modern man. Some of them have taken a very evil approach to explaining modern man. They are all useful to know. The first of them is Kafka, an Austrian born in 1883. 
The second is Kierkegaard of Copenhagen. Born in 1813. The third, Dostoevsky, the Russian. Born in 1822. Nietzsche. Born in 1844. All of these men belonged, as you see, to the last century. And they describe modern man without God as no psychologist has described him. They were not all believers. Kafka, for example. In his work, The Castle tells of a surveyor who is bound to report to the man in the castle. But he never can get to see his superior. It's always tomorrow. Maybe next week. Kafka, under this symbol, attempts to present modern man who does not quite ever achieve his destiny simply because life is meaningless. And in another one of his works, which is the trial, there is Joseph Kafka. Notice no last name, just Joseph, Joseph K., not Joseph Kafka. Joseph K., no tradition, no family background. He's sentenced for a crime. He's brought into the courtroom. Courtroom is in total blackness. He does not understand the charge that is against him. He does not understand why he is condemned. And when he is led out to his death, his last words are, like a dog. Kafka is not anti-moral. Kafka is not anti-God. Kafka was just a modern soul. Could feel something of the punishment that the godless soul was experiencing and could describe it well, but could offer no solution. And then there came Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, who was laughed at during his life, said, Copenhagen needs a dead man. He said, when I die, I will be known all over the world. So he is. He first went in for a kind of a life of pleasure. And then he courted a girl by the name of Regina Olsen. And then suddenly he began to think of Regina Olsen as standing for the world. For the world that he said was full of woe. For the Europe that he said in the last century would be spiritually and morally bankrupt in the 20th century. And he felt, therefore, the only way that he could ever decide for the right kind of life was to repudiate Regino's. There was nothing wrong with poor Regina. And he did it in a very ungentlemanly and very unchristian sort of way. He describes it all in his two-volume work, Either Or. Kierkegaard chose God. But what is interesting about him is that understanding the modern world the modern soul. He gave details of the fear and the dread and the trembling of modern man who feels, as Kafka said, a punishment and yet never gets a release. Kierkegaard said we had to make a leap of faith like Abraham and God to find peace. 
The solution was not altogether right. It was a bit unsocial. It was certainly unhistorical. But what is interesting about him, and the only reason I quote him is that he knew what went on inside the modern heart. And then we come to that great rush. Sometime, maybe, I might give a whole telecast on this astounding man, Dostoevsky. Kierkegaard was concerned with the individual. Dostoevsky with the world. Dostoevsky said that in the 20th century, Russia would beget an antichrist. Would spread its errors and its doctrines throughout the world. He said that the 19th century was producing a false kind of Liberty. A false liberalism, which was a liberty without law. That, he said, is license. And license begets chaos. And he said, in order to organize this chaos, the 20th century will turn to dictators and to tyrants. And throughout European countries, there will arise dictators. Socialism will begin to sweep the world. Where men will say, I do not want to be I. I cannot bear my loneliness. I want to be we. Russia, he said, will turn into a great and tremendous ant heap. Socialism will tell them what games they are to play, what papers and books they are to read, who they are to marry. And what they shall think. Dostoevsky understood the evil of communism as well as if he had passed through it in China or behind the Iron Curtain. His interest was more the social effects of this godless man. He described it so well we may tell you more at another time. Now we come to someone who shared with Dostoevsky and with Kierkegaard one thing, namely a hatred of the milk and water Christianity that they knew, which was nothing, as Kierkegaard said, but a kind of a trickle of public morality, a trickle. Nietzsche, born of Christian parents, but he repudiated them. And Nietzsche said... God is dead. We need, he said, a superman. People no longer want to be themselves, and there will be a masked man in the 20th century. And he said there will be dictatorships in the 20th century, in Russia, and in Italy, and in Germany. And Russia will eventually conquer China, and India, and all of Asia. And Russia will be, he did not say Russia would, but there will be, he said, a transvaluation of values. By that he meant that the supermen of the 20th century, these tyrants and these dictators, would turn the world upside down so that what was good would become evil, night would become day. He said we ought to accept Christ, but Nietzsche said I hate him. And he wrote a book about him called The Antichrist, and he said... 
Since we cannot accept him, we ought to go mad. And it was the only logical thing that Nietzsche ever did in his life. He went mad. He became a raving maniac. The last 11 years of his life. These were the four horsemen of literature. Some of whom were religious men, and others were anti-religious. As was Nietzsche, particularly. Now to sum it all up. What is the story of modern man and therefore the world? There are two things that are supposed to go together. One is... The misery of man, that is to say, his worries, his trials, his difficulties, his sorrows. And the other that is supposed always to go with it is the mercy of God. But our modern world has split and divorced the two. It has separated the misery of man from the mercy of God. And when there is only the misery of man, what do you have? A terrible, diabolical despair. Despair, dread, and trembling. When you have the mercy of God, without the misery of man, what do you have? Pride, arrogance, what Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard and Nietzsche condemned. A milk and water Christianity that was without any kind of sacrifice in it. When the two are put together, man has peace. When he recognizes on the one hand his own sin, and on the other hand recognizes a redeemer, then he has peace as he hears coming from out of the darkness the words, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavily burdened, and find rest for your soul. A life must be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. It must be understood backwards in the sense that we must know why we are living, namely to save our souls. It must be lived forward in order that we may always attain that goal. Bye now. God love you. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, Angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336.
1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you sincerely for joining me to learn our faith together. And there's not a recording that doesn't touch me in some way, shape, or form, and I believe you feel the same way. Uh, There's always that one gem that's in each talk that you can continue to ponder on uh, throughout the weeks. And so I hope there was something there for you today. And so now we will enter into our catechism lesson. Now we've been sharing these lessons for a number of weeks and we're on lesson number 24. Uh, The topic of today's reflection is sanctifying grace. And so uh, let us, of course, uh, put our thinking caps on as we are now in catechism class, and our good teacher, Bishop Sheen, will give us this lesson again on sanctifying grace. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. Once upon a time, there were two tadpoles amusing themselves under the water. One little tadpole said to the other, I think I'll stick my head up and see if there's anything in this world besides water. The other tadpole said, don't be stupid. There's only what we know, just water. And so we often wonder, is there any wisdom, is there any power above the wisdom of the human intellect and above the power of the human will? There is. And that's what we're going to talk about. As there's something else in the world besides water, there's something else in the world besides human nature, or poor, weak human nature. And that is grace. Grace is not the name of a girl. Grace is this higher wisdom, higher power that can come to us. It really is not a very good name. Because it just means gratis. It merely means that it is free. We cannot merit it in a strict sense. But it appears repeatedly in the New Testament. In the Greek, its name is charis. And it is to be counted about 150 times. Now, if there is another life above the purely natural or the human then it is possible for every Christian to lead a double life. Yes, a real double life. Natural life. A divine life. A human life. A spiritual life. Somewhere in the book of the Apocalypse we read, you call yourselves living and yet you were dead. That means you were biologically alive, but you are spiritually dead. 
we are constantly bumping up against walking corpses on the street. They seem to be alive. Their body, their soul is dead. As the life of the body is the soul, so the life of the soul is grace or the partaking of the divine life. Now, before we come to an understanding of what this divine life is and where it comes from, let us picture a three-story house. There's a cellar, the first floor, and the second floor. The cellar, always a kind of a dark place, where there is thrown a lot of refuse. First floor, fairly comfortable. And the second floor is magnificent. Now these three stories correspond to the three kinds of lives that men may lead. The cellar corresponds to the life of the senses and emotions. Food, drink, carnal pleasure, and the like. I'm not saying these things are wrong. It just merely is a form of culture. It is what has been called by the great Harvard professor Sorokin the sensate culture. He says that is the culture of our time, incidentally. Now, on the first floor, which is far more noble, we might call the floor of reason, science, of art, of humanism, of culture, namely all the things that make life really refined. But that's not all. There is another story, and that's the floor of grace, where there is a higher intellect, stronger will, new powers, new love. Now, there are some people who live on the, in the cellar who say, well, I'm satisfied here. They are the kind of spiritual dropouts. They refuse to walk up to the first floor and to enjoy those cultural pursuits which give man so much joy. And then there are those who live in the first floor of humanism and reason and science and art who say, well, in order to get up to that top floor, I have to walk, don't I? I have to put forth a little effort. I refuse to do that. Why, when I play golf, I always go around the golf course on an electric cart. I'm satisfied. You tell me there's great joy and peace and happiness on the third floor. How do I know? I've never been up there. And then I'm not going to endanger my heart by walking anyway. Well, that's the attitude 
not only of those who live in this realm of the senses, but also those who live in the realm of reason. You know, the tragedy of life is not so much what people suffer. It's what they miss. That's the great sadness. Well, we've not yet defined grace. The Catechism defines it as a supernatural gift of God bestowed on us by Jesus Christ to save us. We will take out one word, supernatural. Well, the supernatural means the third floor in relationship to the second and the first. But it needs a, still a more of an explanation. Before me, as I talk to you, is a microphone. Just suppose this microphone before me suddenly started to bloom. Does it belong to the nature of a microphone to bloom? It certainly does not. If, however, it suddenly burst into flower, that would be a super natural thing for a microphone. Let us take another example. As I am talking to you, I am in my study. I have always arranged my study so that I look into my chapters. That is in order that I may study and work in the presence of our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. On the altar of my chapel, there are flowers. Now suppose some of the flowers on the altar suddenly began to walk on their stems. And they walked out through our little chapel and they came here into my study and those flowers stood before me and each one of their little petals bowed down and saluted me. Does the power of movement belong to a flower? certainly does not. This gift, or it would be a gift, note, exceeds the nature and the power and the needs of a flower. In other words, it would be a supernatural gift. Now, there's no dog here, but I used to have a dog, incidentally, and I used to teach the dog to fast. If I would hold out a piece of meat before the dog and say it was Lent, the dog would not touch it until I said Easter. Well, it took a long time to get that into the dog. That was not a supernatural act for a dog. But suppose any dog came into me as I am talking to you now, and uh, the dog listened to me for a moment, and he would suddenly say, Say, you missed a good point there. You should have quoted the uh, primus secundi of St. Thomas at this point. And I think, too, if you had brought in this quotation from Shakespeare, it would have helped you very much. 
Does it belong to the nature of a dog to speak and to reason? This exceeds the nature and the power and the needs of a dog. And therefore, if it ever did that, it would be a supernatural act for a dog. Now let's come to man. Every man is a creature of God. He's a creature of God because he has been made. Suppose I suddenly became a child of God. So that not just the life of my parents, but the life of God came into me. So that my reason had another light than just the light of reason. And my will had other powers than just my poor, weak human will. Why, that gift would be just as much above my human nature as blooming to a microphone, as walking to a rose, and as speech to a dog. If I became a new creature, so that the body and the blood of Christ somehow was in me, that would be, in the strict sense, a supernatural gift. I say gift. I certainly do not deserve it. And furthermore, when that gift comes, it always changes our direction. Because by our nature we are weak and we tend to sin and to doubt and to selfishness and the like. If we are to change our direction, a new power is needed. If I take, for example, a ball and throw it across the room, the ball will continue in a straight line unless some superior power diverts it. And so, too, natural human beings continue in certain directions, like Paul would have continued his persecution. Sinners would continue in their sin. Agnostics would continue in their doubt, unless some superior power intervened. And that is the power of grace. I'll take, for example, one example of the changing of direction. The editor, rather the former editor of the Communist Daily Worker of London, and his wife were one night listening to a radio program by a commissar of Russia. And suddenly the wife got up and shut off the radio, and she said to her husband, now remember they both were communists, I don't believe he wants peace. I think he wants war. He's talking peace, but he means war. She said, he said, don't talk that way. You're not talking like a communist. She said, I don't care what I'm talking like. He said, if you continue to talk that way, I shall report you to the party. 
She said, report me. Why, he said, you're beginning to talk as if you might become a Catholic. She said, I am. He said, shake. So am I. Now, here was a husband and wife living together, sharing communist ideas. And suddenly they both changed, unknown to one another. What did it? Power outside of them. It's power of will. There's no such thing as just becoming better and better in the natural order, and then suddenly, in the strict sense, the very strict sense, meriting grace. No, nature and grace are quite distinct. It really is the difference between making and begetting. When you make anything, you make something that is unlike you. For example, you make a table. The table does not share your nature. When parents beget a child, they beget something like themselves. Now, when God made us, God was our creator. But when he begets us as creatures, no, when he begets us rather as children, then he is not just our creator. Then he is our father. And when grace comes into us, as our blessed Lord said, the same sap that passes through the branches passes through the vine, and the same sap in the vine passes through the branches. In other words, we begin to share the nature of our blessed Lord. So that he pours out his nature upon us. As St. John said, of his fullness we have all received. When we respond to grace, then we become, well, something like a pencil in the hand. Pencil in the hand, as long as it is directed by the hand, can do anything the hand wants. And we are the instruments of God, and we obey his will just as the pencil obeys the will of the hand. When there is total obedience... That means sanctity. That's what a saint is. A saint is one who is as available to God as a pencil is to my hand. Now, what does grace do to our human nature? Well, first of all, it makes the body a temple of God. That is one of the reasons for purity. What is a temple? A temple is a place where God dwells. Remember when our blessed Lord went into the temple of Jerusalem and the Pharisees asked for a sign, our blessed Lord said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. He was not speaking of that earthly temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body because in that human nature of Christ, God dwelt. Now, by participation, of that divine life, he dwells in us. Now, that's why the body is sacred. That's why we have reverence for it. The body is not a worm, something vile. It's his temple. 
one day it will be glorified too. But the principal effects of grace are in the intellect and in the will. Now, the intellect is that faculty of ours by which we know. The will is, is that faculty by which we choose. The object of the intellect or reason is truth. The object of the will is goodness or love. When grace comes into the intellect, it comes as a kind of a light. It is rather difficult to describe what it does to the human mind. Well, picture sunlight shining through a stained glass window. Notice how it is diffused and brings out all of the colors. Well, that's what grace does to the intellect. It gives it a new vision. Faith then becomes to reason something like the telescope is to the eye. It does not destroy the eye. It just perfects it. And when faith gets into us, it gives us a new certitude, quite beyond reason. All that you get in these Instructions and records of mine are merely motives of credibility. But I do not give you certitude. That has to come from faith. That has to come from God. That is why our blessed Lord said to Peter, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And the certitude that comes from faith is so great that nothing can destroy it. As a matter of fact, the certitude that comes from faith is greater than the reasons for faith. That's because the light comes from God. We often have many certitudes that are stronger than the reasons we can give. For example, if we were challenged all of a sudden to prove that we were legitimate children, it might be rather difficult. We do not have the documents, but nothing could shake that certitude. And so a learned man could give many reasons against the existence of God and the divinity of Christ to one of our children, but he could never destroy the faith of that child. Not only does faith give that certitude, but it also gives us a new outlook. New outlook on birth, suffering, death, joy, pleasures, literature, art. Those who have what St. Paul calls the carnal man, or rather the carnal mind, cannot understand the things of faith. Very much like trying to make a blind man understand colors. Very often those who lack the gift of faith wonder, why is it that we are, are so certain? Why do we have this outlook on suffering? Why are we not depressed? Why do we not contemplate suicide? 
Well, it's simply because we see things very much better. We have a light that they have not. Perhaps we've already said, but it bears repeating, that we have the same eyes at night as we have in the day. But we do not see at night. Why? Because we lack the light of the sun. And so let two people look out on the same problem. They see it very differently. It's because one has only his reason and his senses and the other has faith. But there's also the human will. Now when grace comes into the will, it gives us new power, new strength that we never had before. It gives us a new ability to resist temptation. But too often in this world, as soon as anyone becomes a slave of sin, we speak of him as having a compulsion. We say, oh, he is a compulsive drinker. He is a compulsive eater. Now, that is true. The word that our blessed Lord used to explain that compulsion was uh, slavery. But this does not mean that these people have completely destroyed their freedom. Believe me, there's always a little area of freedom left in an alcoholic and in a pervert and in anyone who was given to the slavery of sin. These sins which started with free acts of our own, they have weakened our will, but they have not completely destroyed it. It is possible for grace to establish a beachhead. Grace has its D-Day. God can get in to any one of these people. And after all, when we're trying to cure people of vices, we can never drive out a vice. We can only crowd it out. How do you crowd it out? You crowd it out by putting something else that isn't grace of God comes in. When we begin to love him, then these vices begin to be pushed out more and more and more. Once a new love comes in, we are changed. I remember once dealing with an alcoholic woman, and I said to her, you love alcohol more than anything else in the world. And because you do love alcohol anything more than anything else in the world, I can't cure you until you begin to love something else more. So we prayed for grace, and grace came in. She was cured. Now this is what grace does to the poor, weak human will. And then it also gives power so that we influence others. Now, if there's any influence, for example, in these words of mine, you may have been listening to these records for many hours, 
if I have any influence on you, if I have changed you. Now, it is not because of any knowledge that I possess and not because of any power that I possess. If I have any influence on you, because the Spirit and the grace of God are working on you. My words are nothing. Of course, I did not begin these instructions without a prayer that the Spirit and the grace of God might give me strength. But if at any time you were changed, do not say, oh, Bishop Sheen, we're so grateful to you. Bishop Sheen did nothing. And I am only the poor instrument of the good Lord. That's all. A very poor one. So if you are changed, there's the difference now between your nature and grace. Because before grace comes, you act in your own way. After you receive grace, you act in his way. That's the difference. Your conscience becomes quickened. What before was so very precious to you now seems as nothing. And what before seemed as so much dross now to you is precious. That's grace. Grace is that supernatural power that illumines your mind to see things above reason. That supernatural power that strengthens your will to do things which before you could not do. It changes you from a creature into a child of God. And most of all, it enables you You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.